That sure was fun. I love that. Lord, we uh, thank you that, that what we just, uh, what the band just sang about and played about uh, is the reality of what you're doing in every one of our lives all the time, that you are bringing us from death to life, making us into new people. Lord, that work that you've begun in us, we invite you to continue to the praise of your glorious grace and to the fulfillment of your purposes in this world. Amen. Well, Covenant family, beloved Covenant family, I love you and I miss you. I miss seeing your faces and having a chance to interact with you. But it is so good, even when we're apart, I don't understand the spiritual mystery of it, but it's, it's real, that even when we're apart, we can be together. Welcome also to those of you who are joining us online from across this country and from around this world. What a joy to have you with us as we come into the presence of God today. And kiddos, I love you and I miss you. Hey, um, kids, today we're going to be talking about jerseys. Have you ever noticed how many people wear sports jerseys? Let me let you in on a little secret. Not everybody who wears a sports jersey is actually part of a professional sports team. There are not actually 183,000 people whose last name is Manning or Luck who all play on the same team. Not everybody who wears the shirt is part of the team. So let me share with you an example. Here's a picture of a 42-year-old man named David Ayers. He is a Zamboni driver. He drives the machine that makes the ice at the hockey arena. And this is a picture of him attending a hockey game. Uh, we went to watch his favorite team, the, the Carolina Hurricanes, play. So he's not playing on the team. He's just there as a fan. Not everyone who wears a jersey plays on the team, but some people do. Some people are the players on the team. They don't just wear the jersey. They are actually part of what's going on. They were chosen. They were equipped. They are valued. They are rewarded. And what is on the outside of them reflects what's true about them. They just don't wear the jersey. It is a part of them thing. It's a who I am and what I do thing for them. So remember David Ayers, the fan who went to the hockey game? Well, here's another picture of him at that same game. Guess what happened in February? Both of the goalies on his team got injured. So they asked him to come out of the stands and put on a hockey uniform and come out onto the ice and to play with them. And he did, and he actually helped his favorite team win. Now, full disclosure, David was the e-bug for this game, which means he was the emergency backup goalie. But the e-bug never plays. It's just kind of a formality to have somebody somewhere in the building who they could say is the backup of the backup of the backup. But it actually happened in this case. Can you imagine what that would be like? Here's a clip that shows him coming onto the ice. What could be going through your mind right now? And you know what's going through Rod Brindamore's mind. He can't believe he's seeing what he's watching. Number 90 come out, get fist bumped from all his players. David Ayers, the emergency goaltender. He's from Whitby, played some junior B. 
sat on the bench in, for the Marlies in December of 2015, but didn't have to play. And here he is in a National Hockey League game in the middle of a playoff race for a team that desperately needs the points. So what's what going, a moment. What's going through your mind? It's a penalty as he's the aggressive one. And how about this moment? Oh Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, actually, that is what God is calling us into today and every day. Today, we're talking about the difference between being someone who wears the shirt and as an outside of you kind of thing and being someone who wears the shirt as a who I am and what I do sort of thing. Kind of like the difference between wearing a yellow t-shirt and being a firefly. So we're going to be using Colossians chapter 3 to walk us through our reflections. And it talks a whole lot about what we're wearing. But it's not talking about shirts. It's talking about attitudes and the way that we relate to the people that God has put around us. About a month ago, we did a really quick text survey, you may remember, during one of my messages and asked you all to share with us, what are some of the limitations that you find yourself coming up against as a result of being in the middle of this whole corona season? And one of the top things that you identified, and it came out in a bunch of different ways, is the, the struggle just to get along with the people who are under your roof, the people that you love. One person described it being like the, the virus being like what happens when the water level in the lake goes down and you start to see all the, the rocks and the stumps and the trash that is there normally under the water level. You all talked about stress, the frustration of everyone trying to use the same workspace and living space and internet service, the weariness and that coming out in impatience and conflict and just the general failure to love each other well. Well, last Sunday, we began this, this three-part series talking about how the kingdom of God has come, is coming, and will come into this world of ours. And today, we're shifting the focus to how the kingdom comes into my individual life and informs the way I interact with the people around me. Well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, give a great summary of that whole uh, kingdom come perspective. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a great shorthand summary of what we talked about last Sunday. So then from here, after verse 4, Paul begins to narrow the focus from what God is doing uh, globally to what God is doing in an individual life and how that will impact the relationships they have. So one of the things that you can't help but notice in those verses that I just read is that the text implies that there are two alternative ways that we can relate to the people that God puts around us. In verse 2, it says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul tells us there's a choice. There are two alternatives. We can live within the framework of this world, reflecting the values of and drawing on the resources of this world around us, or we can live from above, reflecting the values of and drawing on the resources from the kingdom of heaven. So let's explore both of those. We'll start out by, by looking at at what characterizes our relationships if we live with our minds set on earthly things. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So in these verses, in verse 5 in particular, Paul is speaking about living out of whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here's what that means. Who matters most? What's the starting point? What's the point of reference from which you live when you live from below, when you live out of your earthly nature? It's me. The person who matters more to me than anyone else is me. Left to ourselves, selfishness is the MO of every single one of us as human beings. Colossians chapter 3, picking up in verse 9. You have taken off your old self with its practices, and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. It's all about me. Paul says that's the outlook of what he calls the old self in verse 9. One of the best books I read this past year is a delightful little devotional book called the Frankfurt Chronicles. It was written by an anonymous monk who lived in Frankfurt, Germany in the middle 1300s. Actually, I wish it was called the Frankfurt Chronicles. It's actually called Theologia Germanica, but what a clunky and boring title for such a great book. Well, listen to this line from Theologia Germanica. The I, the me, the mine, and the like belong to the natural and false way of living. For in all things, it seeks itself and its own ends rather than goodness for the sake of goodness. So what are these practices that Paul is talking about that characterize the old self that the old self engages in? Whatever serves the self. Theologia Germanica again. All those in whom the true light is not ruling are bent in upon themselves and think much of themselves and seek and propose their own ends in all things. And whatever is most pleasant and convenient to themselves, they hold to be the best. Have you ever noticed how often conflict comes down to whether or not things are going the way I think they should go? Or the way that I think would be most pleasant or convenient for me? That sure is true for me. When we start from ourselves as the starting point, we begin to treat the people in our lives as though they were in our lives for us, for our sake, for our benefit. So we try to get from them whatever we feel we need or we desire or we deserve. This is where we all start apart from Christ. It is the, the natural bent, as our friend from Frankfurt, Frankfurt put it, to think about ourselves first, to be bent in upon ourselves. So if I'm bent in upon myself, if, if I am at the center of my life, then how will I relate with you? Well, I'll start out by trying really hard to be nice to you as a way of getting from you what I want. This is the Febreze method of relating. You don't wash the self out. You just spray over it and hope that no one notices the smell. 
So I try hard to be nice and to be patient or to compromise or to be flexible because it's a strategy to get what I want. And that will last for exactly 18 minutes. And then when things don't go the way I want them to go, the way I feel that they should go, the way I feel that I'm entitled for them to go, then this is what comes out. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Isn't that really the inevitable result of living life with self at the center? There's kind of a progression in these five words. The first three are about the growing frustration we feel when things aren't going our own way. And then the last two are about how those things come out in our words in the way that we relate to each other because we are holding that other person responsible for our happiness and their failing. Anger. This is simmering indignation and seething resentment that grows and deepens over time as I become disappointed with you. Rage is anger boiling over. It is losing your temper. It's an outburst of anger. And malice is spite. It's maliciousness. It's a desire to get even. I'm going to make you feel the hurt that you have made me feel. And then the last two are the way that those feelings spill over into the way that I interact with the person that I'm angry with. Slander means being critical. It's speaking to someone or often speaking about someone to other people in a way that tears them down. And then filthy language literally just says shameful speech. This is lashing out in an indiscriminate way with hurt and with anger, and it refers to anything that comes out of my mouth that I'm going to regret later. What's the inevitable result of all of that? That's the inevitable result of me living with self at the center, and that will inevitably lead to us being driven further apart, and both of us feeling alienated, and feeling hurt, and feeling resentful, and feeling stuck. So that's what it looks like to live from below when the self is at the center, some version of that becoming the inevitable result. But there is an alternative as the king comes and knocks on our door and invites us into a different sort of life, a life lived from above. So let's look now at what that sort of life looks like, a life that reflects the values of and draws on the resources that are available to us from the kingdom above. So in this way of living, who matters most? No longer the me, the my, the mine, the self, and the like. Instead, Jesus comes first in my heart, ahead of me. Verse one says, I have set my heart on him. Verse four says, he is my life. You know this, but whatever you set your heart on is really the thing that shapes your life more than anything else. Whether that's making a million dollars or making the soccer team next year, what you set your heart on shapes how you live. So what have you set your heart on? One of my favorite parables is the one verse parable that's found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, 
he hid it again, and then in his joy he went, and he sold all he had and bought that field. That's what it means to become a follower of Christ. Christian faith is sometimes presented as this sort of calculus, this deal, this business exchange. So much of this thing called faith given in exchange for so much of this thing given back called eternal life. But that fails completely to communicate the captive heart that stands at the center of the Christian life rightly understood. The Christian life is nothing less than a life given over to Jesus in love, in devotion, in joy, and in submission. A Copernican revolution is implied, turning our lives inside out from an egocentric life to a Christocentric life, a a life centered on him and no longer on the self. So before we go on, who or what, if you're honest with yourself, who or what stands at the center of your life. The critical question of faith is not, do I believe in Jesus? I can believe in Jesus and still have a whole lot of room for a whole lot of other things in my heart vying for my allegiance. The crucial question is, is Jesus at the center? Does he occupy the center of my life? Have I given my heart's first allegiance to him? To the extent that I have, well then to that extent, the following things will become true of us. Look what Paul says as he goes on in Colossians chapter 3. Look at what Paul says is the result of me setting my heart on Jesus and looking to him to be my life. Two life-changing things. First of all, his life in me, his power and his presence within transforms who I am. When I entrust my life to Jesus, he begins remaking me from the inside out into his own likeness. He clothes me in himself. Paul talks about that same reality in three ways. In verse one, he says, we have been raised up with Christ. In verse three, he says, we died and now our life is hidden with Christ in God. And in verses nine and 10, he says, we have taken off our old self with its practices and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. When you open up your heart to Jesus, at the core of your being, something real and fundamental changes. Something comes alive in you for the first time. It's the new self, the self that God intended you to be from the start. Here's the second life-changing thing that happens when I set my heart on Jesus and I open up my life to him. His love for me, his acceptance, and his affection for me transforms how I see myself. His love redefines and transforms me as a person. Look at three amazing descriptions of God's regard for me in verse 12. It says, I am God's chosen person, picked by God himself, made his by his decision, by his choice of me. It says, I am holy. That doesn't just mean morally good. It means something far more sweeping than that. 
It means I am set apart for him. I'm brought into his realm, into his domain. I am part of his team, and my life now is defined by his loving purposes for me. I'm chosen. I am holy, and I am dearly loved. I have become the object of God's affection. Think of how it would change us if we really took those things to heart. The truest thing of all about me now is the fact of my belovedness. No matter what I do or fail to do, I am loved, and that changes everything. Life with the self at the center is a life of continual exasperation and disappointment. But when we let Jesus occupy the center of our hearts, when we take his love for us to heart, then that gives us the freedom to resign from a life of scrambling to meet the needs of the me, the my, the mine, the self, and the like. And only then will I begin to experience rest and peace. And only then can I begin to truly love you and stop using you. When he matters more to me than me, that lets you matter more to me than me. You are no longer the path to the me, the my, the mind, the self, and the like. Now I don't put on niceness as a strategy to get what I want from you. I put on love because you deserve it, because you matter. I put on love because I've been loved, and I've been changed by love. And here's what that's going to look like. When I put on the jersey of, when I am clothed in love himself. When Jesus is at the center, then he clothes me in compassion. This literally says guts of compassion or bowels of mercy. In the uh, ancient world, they used to think of your stomach and your intestines as the seat of deep emotion. But I guess the I intestine New York bumper sticker didn't go over so well. So they decided to shift the, the center of emotion. But when you think about it, it makes about as much sense to say that our heart pump, our blood pump, is the source of our emotion. That makes about as much sense as saying our food processing tube is. But either way, the whole point of it is that this is the thing that we feel from the deepest center of who we are. Compassion, a heart filled with understanding and compassion when it encounters someone else in need. Kindness, this is a goodness that spills over into kindness, a care and concern that expresses itself with no edge of impatience or abruptness or entitlement. Humility means not putting yourself first, a lowliness or a modesty that considers the other person more important. Gentleness, a gentle-souled mindfulness or mildness that comes from not being overly impressed with your own self-importance. And patience, the opposite of being short-tempered, literally means long-suffering, patience, forbearance, magnanimity when things don't go the way you want. When the self is at the center, we take the failure of others personally. Your failure is met with my impatience, my disappointment, my unforgiveness, because I see your failure as being about me. But when Jesus is at the center, then when you fail me, 
or I fail you, I will fail you as often as you fail me, then we extend grace to one another, proportionate with the grace that we ourselves have received from Christ, who laid down his life in love for us to purchase our forgiveness and to set us free from recrimination, from ours and from anyone else's. Chapter three, verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other means choose to graciously put up with things not being the way you think they should be. Forgive, choose to release one another from having to pay or having to make things right. Verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. I like the way the New Testament for everyone captures this. I think it's really faithful to the Greek. It says, on top of all this, you must put on love, which ties everything together and makes it complete or as God intended it to be. Love is our highest calling. And it is that which binds all of these other virtues together and brings them into their intended completion putting the other person ahead of us, even when it costs us, it's the band, it's the bond, it's the unifying principle in our family and in our church family as well. It's the thing that God intends would define us and complete us, that would become the truest thing about us because it is the truest thing about him, the one into whose image we're being framed. So how does the kingdom of God come down into the life of an individual and his or her relationships? It all comes down to who is at the center of your life. We can persist in a life centered on the self, dominated by the self, serving the self, or we can take the self out of the center and put Jesus there where as king of the universe, he rightly belongs. If you've never put the weight of your life onto Jesus, if you've never given your heart over to him, I urge you to do that right now. And trust your life into his and experience the joy and the wonder of a heart liberated from bondage to the self and set free to love. This isn't something that we can muster up in ourselves. This isn't the shirt that we just put on, trying hard to love others out of our own effort and our strength. Instead, this is something that God is already doing in us by his spirit with which we are called to cooperate Cooperation is the most important response. That's the most important work that we can do as followers of Christ. Begin each day by turning your life over to Jesus all over again. Say yes to him anew every day. Open your life up to and say yes to the work of the Spirit within you, inviting him to fashion you into his likeness and to establish you in his love for you. And then make your life available for God and say yes to his work through you in the lives of the people God puts around you. Ask him to clothe you in his likeness. Ask him to, to love other people through you to become his instrument of love. What would it look like for us to become a church that is known more for its love than for anything else? It would look like this. This is how we become that kind of person this is how we become that kind of family. This is how we become that kind of church family, with our yes to God. Inviting him to call us out of the stands, to suit us up 
and to send us out into the game with his name on our backs. Would you pray with me? Lord, the reality is that we are incapable of mustering up peace between us through our own efforts. But the spiritual truth is that peace between us and peace among us is what you are producing all the time. As we surrender and submit to you, as we open our lives to you and turn our lives over to you and let you have the last word. So Lord, make it so. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King.